Good evening, guys. Uh, welcome, especially if you're uh, joining us tonight online. Uh, so glad that you have joined us uh, for our study tonight in the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 5 uh, here on Wednesday nights. We're going to finish up chapter 5 tonight. We'll look at verses 16 through uh, 47 here this evening. Now, when Jesus healed, we saw this last time, when Jesus healed the men uh, at the pool of Bethesda, uh, it was on the Sabbath. And as all of the works that Jesus did uh, on the Sabbath, it stirred a controversy uh, and it caused the Jews uh, to want to kill him. However, what they didn't realize is, is that he's God. And the Messiah wasn't simply a man doing something that they disagreed with, but he was God in the flesh, which has to be understood if we are going to respond to him and be saved. And so Jesus reveals here how the Son is God and how life and judgment are in the Son. And then something very interesting as we finish up this chapter, he talks about the the, the threefold witness uh, of the Son. So we'll see exactly uh, what that's all about as well. So let's get into it. Chapter 5, verse 16. It says, For this reason, uh, the, the Jews persecuted Jesus. Again, because he healed the, the man at the pool of Bethesda who had been lame for uh, 38 years, ha- had an infirmity for 38 years. Jesus healed him, and because it was on the Sabbath, they persecuted him, and Jesus sought to kill him. Uh, and so, but here's the thing. He hadn't broken the Sabbath. He had broken their traditions uh, concerning the Sabbath. The purpose of the Sabbath was rest and worship, communion with God. And so, Healing in no way conflicted with, number one, rest, and number two, communing and worshiping God. But it did conflict with how their traditions evolved concerning what the definition of work was on the Sabbath. And so they couldn't see what really mattered anymore. All they could see was their ideas. And so Jesus answered them and he said, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. So, even if you want to consider um, healing on the Sabbath as work, God is exempt from work on the Sabbath. He says, God has been working 24-7. He's worked every single Sabbath because the purpose of the Sabbath wasn't to give God rest. The purpose of the Sabbath was to give man rest. You know, this is a very fascinating verse, verse 17. My father has been working, and I have been working until now. So God rested on the seventh day. (coughs) And he created everything. And then Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, says that on the seventh day he rested. But it wasn't because God needed rest. God rested as an example uh, to man of the Sabbath because man would need rest and man would need to draw near to God. But since the fall, he has been working without rest on behalf of man, redeeming and reconciling. And so, as I said, the Sabbath was for man's benefit, but God has been working through the Sabbath, so to speak. Uh, And as I said, God doesn't need rest. In fact, uh, I think of Psalm, there in Psalm 121, verses 3 and 4, says this, that Psalm 121, verses 3 and 4, it says, He will not allow your foot to be moved. Uh, He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. So what we discover is is that God isn't like us. God doesn't get tired. That's the idea of slumber, drowsy. God, God 
doesn't get drowsy and he, he, he doesn't uh, need rest. And so the things that were necessary for man weren't necessary for God. The point that Jesus is, is making, he's going to make here in several ways, is, is that just that. He is God. And rest is for man. Rest is not the first point. Rest is not for God. So uh, this didn't apply to him, even if it was in fact working, which it was not. Verse 18, therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, again in their minds, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So they understood that uh, he, in making himself to be uh, the son of God, that he would be making himself out to be equal with the Father. And if they were to believe Jesus, that he was more than just a man, then he would have to somehow be not only equal, but he would have to be one with the Father. Because they were monotheistic. So, in other words, there couldn't be two or more gods. Jesus would have to somehow be of the same substance as the one true and living God, he would have to be making himself out not just to be a God, but to be God, uh, somehow his son and somehow one in essence uh, as God with the Father. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 39 says this, Deuteronomy chapter 4 uh, and the 39th verse uh, says, <clears throat> Therefore know this day and consider it in your heart that the Lord himself is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. So, you know, so many of the religions of the world, you probably realize this, are, are uh, polytheistic. In other words, they have many gods. You know, you have um, millions, uh, if not billions of gods in part of Hinduism, and, 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 but you have the so-called great monotheistic religions of the world. You have uh, Christianity, of course, you have Judaism, uh, and then you have uh, Islam, which is also monotheistic. And so, but most of the other religions of the world, when you look at them, are polytheistic. You know, if you look at Native American religion, you know, uh, God is everywhere and everything, or gods are everywhere and in everything, and and, and Hinduism is much the same, and so, so much of the worship of the world is in that form. And so when Jesus comes, he's, he's not suggesting that there are many gods, and, and they understood that, and, and, and this was the challenge for them to believe. Not only that he was the Son of God, but that he was somehow one and equal with the Father. And so it says that they sought all the more to kill him, uh, because they understood what he was saying very clearly. And Jesus answered and said to them, verse 19, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. So he continues on. He's, he's one with the Father. He, he, he is God. He is equal uh, with the Father and he didn't act independently, but according to the will of the Father. In fact, down in verse 30, he says, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. So he wasn't acting independently, uh, but according to the Father's will. And he said, verse 20, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. So he continues on talking about, talking about this, uh, not only how he is God, but this, this relationship that exists. He is, he is one, he is equal with the Father. And there is this loving relationship that exists within the Godhead. Here, he talks about it between the Father and the Son. And it's 
not only a loving relationship, but it's a relationship where the father shares his plan with the son and works powerfully and in great ways and would work in even greater ways through his son. And he says in verse 21, as he gets into this a little bit, for as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the son gives life to whom he wills. And so as he's reinforcing this idea that he is equal with the father, only God can give life. You know, and, and that's the point here. Only God can give life. And so the Father certainly can give life, and they would acknowledge that. But they also would have to acknowledge eventually that the Son has the power over life and death as well. Isn't that interesting that man, for all his abilities, still can't control life and death? You know, it, it, he even, you know can't take the, the substance of life and put it together and create life. There's still, there's still that missing piece, the, the, the breath that God breathes into to creatures. And there is, of course, in man a spirit and a soul. And so while you can create the body... You understand that life is more than the body. In fact, life isn't the body at all. The body is what contains life. And as James says in, in his epistle, that the, the spirit, the, the, the definition of death is the spirit without the body. And, and when the spirit departs from the body, that is death. And so man can't, you know, he doesn't have the ability to create that substance uh, of the spirit and the soul and to breathe life into the physical body. And so, uh, while man can take life, technically, he, he can do things to uh, cause life to cease, um, ultimately it is God who controls, uh, who gives life, uh, and who raises life up because man can't control that side of the equation. And so when Jesus says that, that the Father raises the dead and that the Son also gives life, um, then what he is saying is, is again, that he is, he is God and he is equal to the Father. And so both, and he's talking about life in, in a couple of different ways because as we go through this passage further, uh, you'll see it. But... <clears throat> He's talking about spiritual life, but he's also talking about the resurrection of the body, that both the Father and the Son give spiritual life, that is eternal life, uh, and the physical resurrection of the body. Now, I will say this, that there is a third sense in which Jesus also gave life, uh, and that's that he physically raised the dead. It's different than resurrection. You'll Sometimes here people call what Jesus did in the Gospels resurrection, but technically it's not really resurrection. It's just people who died who were brought back in this body. Resurrection is the transformation of this body, which uh, hasn't happened to anyone yet except Jesus. And we'll talk later on about, about resurrection in a, in a spiritual way. Uh, uh, or a biblical sense. But what Jesus did was, uh, for example, when the graves were opened after uh, his uh, death and resurrection, those people were raised in their natural bodies, only to eventually die again later. When Jesus raised Lazarus in John chapter uh, 11, verses 43 and 44, Lazarus would have uh, died again later. When he raised Jairus' daughter in uh, Luke chapter 8, verses 54 and 55, uh, she would have died again later when he raised the son of the widow in, in the village of Nain. He would have died again later. He was, he was raised physically. So it's interesting. There's really three senses in which Jesus controlled life, he, in which he gave life, in which 
God gave life. That was in an eternal, in a spiritual sense. That was also in terms of the resurrection. But that was also, uh, or, or, or lastly, in the sense that he actually raised a few people back from the dead in their physical bodies. So, so no matter how you want to look at it, Jesus had the power over life and death. And <clears throat> verse 22, he says, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. That all should honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So, the Son is, Jesus is, is saying now in, in, in a further sense, is worthy of the same honor as the Father. And to withhold that honor, which is what they were doing, is to dishonor the Father. So his whole point is, is that he is God. And the fact that they rejected him and even wanted to kill him, uh, they were, weren't just rejecting a man, but that they were rejecting God and the Son of God uh, and uh, God come in the flesh, that he was equal and one with the Father. Now, you say, what's, you know, maybe they, someone like that would say, well, okay, so we reject you. What is, uh, you know, what are the consequences of that? Well, verse 24, he says, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. And shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. So what's at stake? Everything is at stake. If you fail to recognize that Jesus is God and you reject Jesus as the Son of God and God come in the flesh, then everything is at stake. Because not only is He God, but uh, judgment has been committed to the Son. He's already told us that, and now he's going to elaborate on that. Verse 25, most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. So the hour was now uh, when some, uh, the hour now was when, when some of the spiritually dead would hear the voice of the Savior, they would respond, is what Jesus is saying, and they would live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. And so He, he talked about that in terms of deity, uh, and now, again, He elaborates upon that in terms of judgment. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment also because He is the Son of Man. So he's established that he is the Son of God, but Jesus was both the Son of God and the Son of Man. Fully God and fully man. He took on at his incarnation an additional nature. He was eternally the Son of God, never created at one point, but eternally existent with the Father. John makes that clear in, in the beginning of his gospel, that he was in the beginning with the Word. Uh, or the word in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Speaking of Jesus uh, as the word of God, and so it's very interesting uh, that he took on this son of man, this this uh, human nature at his incarnation, and as God and man, he then lived a perfect life died for our sins, rose again, so that he is perfectly qualified to judge. I like what the author of Hebrews tells us, that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but who was in all points uh, tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus was perfect, but he was still fully human. So he is perfectly and uniquely qualified to judge. Because he is God, but he is also the perfect human being. And so he will sit in judgment. Jesus says that the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves, verse 28, will hear his voice. So the time will come when he raises the dead. And they will come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. 
And so we see that there are two options, and only two options, that everybody is going to live forever somewhere. And that, that's very interesting, because I, I think that a lot of people don't realize this. I think a lot of people think that <clears throat> Christians believe that just Christians will live forever. But the reality is, is that everybody's going to live forever. And there are only two options as to where that will be. He says this, that, uh, that some, it's going to be the resurrection of life. And others, it's going to be the resurrection of condemnation. And when he talks about those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil, uh, obviously he's speaking of those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, those who love me keep my commandments. And we also know that those who reject him live in darkness. So true believers, faith in Christ, and they walk. They live out that faith. So naturally, they're doing good. But nowhere, if you were just to take this verse, then you would say, yeah, you know, man is saved uh, based on his works. But uh, as uh, James also said, show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works, for faith without works is dead. So, so the natural byproduct of faith, the, the life uh, of faith is good works. And so those who have done good, the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil, the opposite to the resurrection of, uh, of condemnation. So when someone dies, their spirit and their soul either goes to heaven. Right now, we would say, uh, we, we would call that heaven. But I, I would say that, that it's better to look at the death of a believer um, in term, and even unbelievers, but, but just believers for a moment, in terms of the concept of an eternal state. In other words, um, an, an eternal state of being, which depending on what time, uh, it has different aspects. What do I mean by that? Well, if you were to die today, in a very rudimentary uh, sense, we would say you go to heaven. I don't really have a problem with that, but it, it's rather unspecific because, yes, we go to if I were to die today, I, I go to be, my spirit and my soul go into the presence of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So you are spirit, soul, and body. In other words, the spirit, the highest level of man that communes with God, the soul, that level of reason and emotion, both of those uh, intangibles from our perspective. Then we have the body, which is the vessel. And when you separate the soul and the spirit from the body, as I said, James identifies that as death. The spirit and the soul go to be with the Lord, the, the domain of God. We would, we would call that heaven. But there are different aspects of the eternal state because we know that when Jesus Christ returns after the close of the tribulation, we come with him and we rule and reign with him. Well, that's not exactly heaven, is it? It's good, but we're ruling with him on earth. And so, again, the, this idea of the eternal state, well, that's different during the millennial reign of Christ. And then after the millennial reign of Christ, there is uh, ultimately the new heaven, because the, uh, uh, well, not in the eternal sense, that doesn't change, but in terms of the atmosphere, the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, it, it, it's all, uh, it, it is destroyed and recreated. And so man's domain in that part of the eternal state is heaven, but is also the atmosphere, the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. And, and, and so, you know, to, say, to simply say, I guess you see the problem, to simply say, well, we're going to heaven, well, I guess that's, a, if you want to just say it simply, but, but it's so much more than that. And for the unbeliever, it's something different. So when we die, our spirit and our soul, for believers, leaves our body. Our body goes in the ground. It's buried or people are cremated or whatever. Uh, their body awaits the resurrection, regardless of the, if they're buried or if they're cremated, by the way. Because guess what? If you're buried in the ground and you're there long enough, you return to dust anyway. So 
A lot of people say, well, I don't want to be cremated because how will I be resurrected? Well, listen, it's not a problem for God. And if you're in the ground long enough, uh, same problem or not problem. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? So I wouldn't really worry about that. And, and, and uh, a lot of people ask about that. The Bible has no pro- prohibition uh, on uh, cremation. And different cultures have varied uh, in very different ways uh, over, the, uh, over the millennia. But your body goes into the ground or is cremated. Your spirit and soul go to be with the Lord. The unbeliever, their body goes in the ground as well to await a different resurrection. We'll talk about that. Where does their spirit and their soul go? The Bible says most people would say what? Hell. Not exactly. The Bible says that right now their spirit and their soul goes to a place in Hades or the grave called torments. Luke chapter 16 talks about this. Jesus talks about this in that passage. So it's kind of a a pre-hell, I guess you could say. It's where they go and it is a place uh, of suffering. But it is not ultimately the hell that Jesus referred to Gehenna or the lake of fire because what is going to happen is is that there are two resurrections there is a resurrection uh, of life as Jesus says and there is a resurrection of condemnation and so believers uh, the first resurrection is for believers and beginning at the rapture of the church and all the way through the millennial reign of Christ, so all of those people for a thousand and seven years, uh, during that period of time uh, from the rapture to the millennium, plus everybody else who has already died, they are going to be resurrected in the first resurrection, that is every other believer. Let's look at a few passages related to uh, the rapture and the resurrection. First Corinthians chapter 15 First of all, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. By the way, what, why, do you, why do I talk about these things? Because, uh, well, obviously they're very important, number one. I think that goes without saying. But I think that this is probably one of the most uh, misunderstood subjects uh, for Christians. The, the resurrection of the body might be the most misunderstood subject or I think it's got to be up there in the top three, if not the most misunderstood. There are a lot of people, they don't even know there's a resurrection. They, they, they just have a very rudimentary concept that, yeah, I'm, gonna, I, I'm going to heaven. I believe, you know, if you were to talk to maybe a hundred Christians in this country, or maybe any, you know, any Western country, are you a Christian? Yeah, uh, if they would say that. Yeah, if, if they'd say I'm a Christian. What, what does that mean? Well, I, if they got the answer somewhat right, it would be, you know, I place my faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, and I'm going to heaven. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean you're going to heaven? Well, when I die, I just go to heaven. What happens to your body? Well, I go to heaven. What happens to your spirit or soul? If they understand that, well, I'm going to heaven. There's not going to be much concept of the resurrection of the body, even though it's everywhere. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51, Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, in other words, not everybody's going to die, but we shall all be changed. That's what the resurrection is. It's a big change. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. He's talking about the resurrection of the body. And when the body is raised up, it's not as though God just takes this body and says, all right, here you go. Now live in it in eternity, because Paul also says here that, that, that it has to be changed, because this flesh and blood, this corruption can't inherit eternity. This body can't dwell in, in, in eternity. It has to change, and so God is going to transform it. There's going to be, uh, the word here uh, is, is the word that we get the word metamorphosis from. It, it's a Greek word, metamorpho, which means a, a change, a transformation. And so just as, you know, uh, a caterpillar is transformed into an entirely 
uh, different creature. So your physical body is going to be changed. And it has to be changed. And so when is he talking about that? Well, he's talked about a, a trumpet and all sorts of other things. Well, over there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17, he talks about the rapture of the church. So the resurrection hasn't happened yet, but we see when it starts. He alluded to it in 1 Corinthians. Now in 1 Thessalonians, Paul also says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Wait, what? The dead in Christ rise first. I thought you said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Yes, I did. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Their bodies. This is the resurrection of the body. Their spirit and their soul are awaiting the resurrection of their body. And it will happen at the rapture of the church. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. And so, you know, uh, if, if we're alive at that time, we'll be raptured and resurrected. Those who have already died, their spirit and soul is with the Lord. They'll receive their resurrected bodies at that time. And then every person who dies subsequent to that, all the way through the millennial reign of Christ, they'll receive their resurrected bodies uh, as well when they die and when they go and be, uh, go to, to, to be with the Lord. Now in Revelation chapter 20, there in verse 6, uh, John same as the author of our gospel here, Revelation chapter 20, verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection, that resurrection of life. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, I love that. He says, uh, over such the second death has no power. You see, if you are uh, only born once, you're going to die twice. There's two deaths, Scripture just told us. There's a physical death, and then there is a spiritual death. Only as we've established, people are going to live forever. So that spiritual death, in context, is a resurrection to suffering and eternal suffering apart from God. So... Born once, die twice. Born twice, you only die once. In other words, if you're born in this body and you're born again of the Spirit, as Jesus said, then you only have one death to be concerned about and you don't have to be concerned at all and that's a physical death because you won't die that second death, that spiritual death. And so going back then here to uh, the Gospel of John in chapter 5, uh, there in verse 29, this first resurrection is a resurrection of, of believers, as I said, beginning at the rapture for all that have passed away and all who are raptured, extending through the millennium for all who will die after that point. And the second resurrection is of unbelievers. And so when does that take place? Well, it takes place after the millennium and just before the great white throne judgment. So as I said, they go, their spirit and their soul go to uh, torments in Hades. Simply, you know, if you want to put things simply, believers are in heaven and, and unbelievers are in hell. But again, there's a difference in, in terms of the eternal state of both, depending on what point in time we're looking at or what point we're looking at. And so, uh, because at that point, technically, they would be outside of time. So, I guess you would just say, what, what, what point in eternity, uh, if, if that's even a logical statement to talk about points uh, in eternity, because those are rather uh, time-constrained uh, from, uh, from a, 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 a philosophical perspective and, and, and a physics perspective, shall we say. Uh, but uh, after the millennium, just before the great white throne, now, in Revelation chapter 20, that passage we were just uh, looking at there, in verse 5, it says that the rest of the dead didn't live until the thousand years were finished. So, the second resurrection, the rest of the dead, the resurrection to condemnation, as Jesus puts it, 
There, that resurrection doesn't happen until after the millennium. And in Revelation 20, verse 11, it says this, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and, the books were, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. Again, in torments in Hades, their spirit and their souls are delivered up. And the earth, uh, the sea, delivers up all of the bodies of those unbelievers. And this is, we just talked about it, the second death. This resurrection under condemnation, under judgment, is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And that is what, when Jesus talks about hell, that's what he's talking about. The word in Greek is Gehenna. It comes from a, uh, it comes from a Hebrew term, uh, Ben-Hinnom, the son of Hinnom. And that was the valley on the, uh, well, it's kind of the, the uh, southwestern uh, side of the old city of Jerusalem. The valley's it's still there today. It's a, it's a street, basically, now that uh, comes from uh, down uh, in the Kidron Valley. It intersects the Kidron Valley, and it's just a little short little valley that runs up and kind of formed the old city of Jerusalem. It was outside the walls, just outside of uh, the refuse gate. And the refuse gate was for, you guessed it, the trash. That's where they took out the trash. And that's where the sewage of the city later on when they developed slightly more modern sewage, where, where it flowed out of the city. So the Valley of Hinnom was always on fire because they were always burning trash in the valley. It was also a place of, uh, historically of idolatry where they sacrificed to foreign gods, where they, they even sacrificed at times their children. And so, you know, it was probably the least desirable real estate anywhere around Jerusalem. <laughs> no one would live there. You couldn't give it to anybody, and it served a very distinct purpose. So Ben-Hinnom in Greek is Gehenna. And that's the word that Jesus uses for hell. And that's the concept that this lake of fire, Jesus says where the fire is not quenched and where the worm does not die. Just always burning. And so that is really the ultimate aspect of the eternal state for the unbeliever. That is truly eternal suffering in hell and what the Bible calls the second death. So it's important to understand, you know, the answer to the question, what happens when you die? Well, depends on who you believe in and depends on what aspect after death or the rapture that you want to talk about in terms of where you go, what you will be doing, and you know who is where. And so it's, it's very important to understand this. I don't think that it's particularly complex. I don't think that people fail to understand this because it's it's too complicated for them to understand. I just think that wherever they're getting their information, they're not talking about it. You know, they're, they're not being given this information. And, and, and it's very important to understand these things, not only for your own benefit, uh, but for the benefit of those that you share the gospel with. And so Jesus talks about, you know, there's two, there's two options in terms of, uh, of where you'll spend eternity. And so, verse 30, he says, I can do, as we looked at earlier, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. And so, having talked about uh, how the, the Son uh, is God and how life and judgment are in the Son, 
Then Jesus gets into, okay, so, so how do we know that he is the Son of God? How do we know that, that he is the one who has been given um, the authority to judge? Well, verse 31. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. How could they verify the things that he was saying? Well, under the law, three things. Um, there, you needed basically three witnesses, or two to three witnesses, uh, to establish anything. So Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15 tells us that, that, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, something will be established. So you couldn't just have one witness. You needed at least two and so, uh, but preferably three, and here we see the threefold witness of the Son. He says, verse 32, there is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. Now, uh, depending on which translation um, you have in verse 32, the he may be capitalized. Uh, if you're reading from the New King James Version like I am, it is. Uh, and that is because some see, have interpreted He to be either the Father or the Holy Spirit. Um, I will tell you that based on the context, I think that it is neither. Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. Verse 33, you have sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. So Sometimes you just need to look at the next verse. And in this case, uh, John the Baptist bore witness. So, so the first of these three witnesses is John the Baptist. He bore witness that Jesus was the Messiah. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose, John said. And so John was acknowledged as a prophet. So the prophet of God in their time had witnessed that Jesus was the Messiah the Lamb of God, was the Son of God. Witness number one. He says, verse 34, Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. So Jesus says, I, you know, I don't need man to testify, but I'm, I'm giving you this example for your benefit. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in His light. You, you liked John for a while, but... I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So if you think about it, first, John the Baptist testified. Okay. But one witness isn't really enough, according to the law. You need at least two. Jesus says, how about all the miracles I've performed? Jesus had healed people with leprosy. Jesus, as we talked about, had raised the dead. Jesus had healed the lame. Jesus had healed the blind. He performed all of these works, and his works testified that he came from God. Because not only was, not, was no one else doing this, but you couldn't do this apart from the power of God. Of course, they tried to attribute them to Satan, but when they did, Jesus showed them how illogical that was. And then verse 37, he says this, And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. So, witness number one, John the Baptist. Witness number two, his miracles. Witness number three, the Father. Where did the Father testify of him? He says, But you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. They had the word of God. You see, you could say, well, you know, God has witnessed of me. Well, that could be a rather um, difficult claim to prove. Except that we have the word of God. And they even, at least verbally, acknowledged that this was the Word of God. And this very Scripture that they acknowledged as the Word of God testified over and over of Jesus. They just 
did their best to ignore it. Isaiah 53, the suffering Savior. Moses, speaking of the prophet, and so many others, even Job, speaking of the Messiah. And he says, you search the Scriptures. You're, they're going through the, the Word of God with their little finger pointer. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen it. And it, you know, they just go along with it. And oh, searching the Scriptures. You know, straining at a gnat, as Jesus said, swallowing a, uh, a camel. Not abiding in the Scriptures, the Word of God that they searched. They, they studied it. But it did nothing in them, and most importantly, they miss in it that it testified of Jesus, this all-important third witness. He says, verse 40, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. So, interestingly enough, despite these, all these witnesses uh, and coming in the name of the Father, they, they wouldn't receive Him. But when the Antichrist comes, uh, many will receive Him. Verse 44, how can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from uh, the only God? So, uh, they... And Jesus says, here, here, really, here's your problem. You care more about the honor of men than the honor of God. And do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. So he says, and by the way, I don't even really need to accuse you. Because the one you say you follow accuses you. In other words, the law which they falsely prided themselves in would accuse them, which they, in their traditions, while claiming to follow, broke on a moment-by-moment basis. He says, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. So in a way, uh, this is really a subset of the, th- of the third Witness, which is the Father through the Word of God, and and that is Moses. Moses prophesied about him, as I just mentioned earlier in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 18, verse 15. Moses said, God's going to raise up you for you a prophet like me. Him you will hear, and ultimately they will hear him. But at the, when Jesus was there, they didn't. And also what's interesting is, is in, in John chapter 3, there in, in verse 14, Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So when Moses created that, uh, that bronze pole, when they crafted that bronze pole with a, with a serpent uh, wrapped around it, God told them to do that, uh, told him to do that, because they were being bit by fiery serpents in the wilderness and and God said, erect this serpent on a pole, the serpent's symbol of, of sin, their sin hung on a pole, that if anyone comes and looks at it, they'll be healed. Well, here Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. In a way, that was a prophecy, God using Moses to prophesy there in uh, recorded um, in, in the book of Numbers, uh, actually, in chapter 21, verses 8 and 9. But that was a prophecy of the Messiah. That was looking forward to the Messiah. They searched the Scriptures, yet these are they, Jesus said, that testify of me. Verse 47, but if you do not believe His writings, how will you believe my words? So if they had rejected all of this testimony in the Scripture, how would they believe the one who was before them fulfilling that Scripture? So Jesus hadn't broken any law, certainly not the law of God. He understood the Sabbath. He created the Sabbath. He is God, and He will judge. And there were many witnesses to this. 
And while some refuse to believe, uh, and it is, as we've seen, a matter of life and death, I pray that every time we're together that every person who hears will fully embrace this reality. Let's pray. Lord, we are just so grateful tonight to come and to open your word. (coughs) To not only be refreshed by it, but to be reminded of what you have done, what you are doing, and what you are going to do, what is coming. And Lord, my prayer is is that each of us would be walking with you as close as a person can walk with you, can be with you, serving you with complete joy and fruitfulness, but also that we can have confidence that we'll spend forever and eternity with you, not apart from you. As we finish tonight, my concern is really for those, as we're praying, who haven't received Jesus Christ as their Savior. And maybe you've come tonight and you haven't. For whatever reason, you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ. My prayer is is that you would tonight. That you would be mindful of your sin. That you would be repentant of your sin. And that you would have the clarity to see there is only one solution. Only one Savior, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sin. Who was lifted up on that pole. And bore your sin on that cross that you might be washed in his blood, forgiven and free. That you might serve him in this life and that you might be with him forever in heaven and not apart from him in hell, to put it in simple terms. And if you haven't placed your faith in Christ, I pray that you would right now tonight. And I want to invite you to do that. I want to invite you to lift your hand if you'd like to join me in prayer this evening. And God will hear your prayer. And that will settle it. And you will be, as Jesus said, born again. You will have that critical second birth. Being born of the Spirit. Please take this opportunity. If you haven't, take it now. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. We love you and we praise you. And we just pray that that you would be with your people here tonight, that you'd be with your church, that you'd strengthen us in you. Not only would we understand these things, but that they would affect and transform the way that we live. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.